We're continuing in the last two verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And Paul is looking back at the conversion of the people at Thessalonica. And he has said in verse 8 that not only did they hear the gospel, not only did they receive the gospel, but they became transmitters of the gospel. And then he goes to say something even more astounding. He says, and this is the great apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the greatest, possibly greatest evangelist ever. He says, I feel redundant because wherever I go, People say to me, have you heard of those Thessalonians? About what happened to them? And Paul says, well, I don't need to say any more, do I? Because you've put your finger on it. And in verses 9 and 10, which is the verses we're looking at, we started last Sunday evening. He says, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. What is a true conversion? There are three components here. We've looked at two. The first is that we turn. That's repent. Metanoia in the Greek. We turn from dead idols and not just gods of wood, and stone, but whatever we live for and trust in, we turn from that to the living God, Jesus Christ. And then the second component of true conversion is serving. We're not saved just to go to heaven. Otherwise, God wouldn't leave us in this world. We are saved to serve God. And you don't have to become a minister or a missionary to serve God. In one sense, we're all missionaries. We're all to be witnessing to Jesus Christ. So you're serving God where he has put you. That is liberating when you realize that. And then the third component, which is what we're going to look at tonight, is that we're to wait. Now this is something we probably don't give enough attention to but verse 10 we are to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come so this is waiting for the second coming of Jesus Christ now when did we last talk about the second coming when did I last preach about the second coming when did we last look forward to the return of Christ. It's one of the hallmarks of Christianity in the West that the second coming is quite low in our agenda. In places like Moldova, I can see Anya sitting behind me, the second coming is quite high up on the agenda. Now, when you think that apart from death, It's the only certain event 
in the future, then really we should be obsessed about the second coming. And I'm not thinking of charts and all of that jazz. We should really be looking forward to the second coming. Now, the word waits, in the Greek, it means to wait patiently with great anticipation. I think of a child waiting for Christmas Day to come. Now, we know, don't we, that when we were young, we just couldn't wait uh, long enough for Christmas Day. We'd be counting the days. Or to think of another example, maybe a better example, waiting for the summer holidays. Didn't the summer holidays seem to last forever when you were children? And you just couldn't wait for the last day of school before the summer holidays. You'd be looking forward to it. So even if you had exams in June or July, it got you through the exams, the summer holidays at the end. Now that is the kind of Christianity that you've got in the New Testament. You can actually say that they were wrong in their heads, but right in their hearts regarding the second coming. You see, many believers in the New Testament, they really believed that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. They really believed that. Now, of course, they were wrong there, but they were spot on, weren't they? In their hearts. Uh, you only have to think of Jesus ascending into heaven. This is the atmosphere of the New Testament. In Acts chapter 1, they witness his ascension. And then those angels appear, don't they? And in verse 11, they say to the men of Galilee, Why are you standing, gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And the Bible calls this period between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ, the last days. It isn't just the last days immediately before the second coming. We are living now in the last days. And I quoted in my prayer a word that you will find in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. Maranatha. Maranatha. And that means... Oh, come, Lord, uh, or to get the mood of the word. Oh, come, quickly. Now, that is New Testament Christianity. May we catch something of the excitement of these believers regarding this one event. Uh, J. Greer calls it the momentous event, the event that will cause every other event to pass into insignificance. And we don't know when he will come. He could come back tomorrow, couldn't he? Or it could be decades, centuries away. But are we waiting with anticipation? I wonder whether our problem is not so much our lack of understanding the second coming 
but the fact that we're not in love as we should be with the Saviour. It's not so much the what of the second coming, but the who of the second coming. We're not looking forward to an event, are we? We're looking forward to the one who is going to come back. If, if we were really in love with Jesus Christ, then it wouldn't be a problem to look forward more than anything else to him coming back. So let's look at what Paul has to say here, not in terms of the what, not in terms of the mechanics, because we might not see eye to eye on some of those things. I don't know whether you hold to a pre or a post or an a-millennial view, and it doesn't matter in one sense. I remember a brother, he was a caretaker in the school where I was a teacher, and he had a very strong pre-millennial and dispensational view. Now, when you get into dispensationalism, you've got all sorts of complications coming in. And this brother held to all sorts of things that I didn't see eye to eye with him. But he looked forward to the second coming. And he was going through a tough time because he'd become a Christian. And his wife was giving him problems. And he would say to me, it doesn't matter, you know, because he's coming back soon. He's coming back soon. And he would say that with a twinkle in his eye. He was just looking forward to the second coming. May we have that because it's the who that is coming back. Now, let's look here then. Who are we waiting for? Who are we waiting for? Think of waiting for an important person to come. Paul tells us we're waiting for his son from heaven. What's that? That's the second person of the Trinity. Who's that? That's the one who was with the Father from eternity. That's the one who created the universe. That's the one who upholds the universe. That's the one who is very God, of very God, which means he is 100% divine. Wow! We're waiting for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We're appreciating more and more these days the creeds of the early church. We are maybe recognizing that it's not just uh, Protestantism that has much to teach us about Jesus Christ, but also uh, the Eastern Church. And there are the creeds. And one of the creeds defining the second person, the divinity of Christ, puts it like this. I think it's the Nicene Creed. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, lights of lights, who is very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. What an august person to look forward to. He is God, the same substance as the Father. God has only one Son, 
Jesus Christ. Only one natural son. Every other son is adopted. That's you and me. Isn't he worth waiting for? And then there's something else we're told here. Even Jesus. So to wait for his son from heaven. Even Jesus. What does this refer to? This refers to the incarnation. Paul doesn't use that doctrinal term. He hardly ever uses these doctrinal terms. But you've got the theology implied. So the Son of God, as we've been remembering at Christmas time, put on flesh. That doesn't mean to say uh, that he put on humanity as one would put on a mask. No, no. The eternal Son of God became a man. Uh, the Holy Spirit entered Mary's womb and the seed that was conceived in her was a real human embryo and she gave birth in time to a real baby so that baby would have cried like babies tend to do and that baby would have need feeding that baby would have need changing that baby would have needed looking after that baby as it grew would have needed to be taught Jesus, Jesus as a person did not exist before the New Testament. The Son of God became a man, the promised deliverer, Jesus, Joshua. That's what his name means. And again, isn't that an amazing thing? This person, he's God. He's man. It's not 50% God, 50% man. It's 100% divine, 100% human. But it's not two personalities. It's one person. Now, I can't get my mind around these truths, you know. <laughs> but I know that this Jesus is one person with two natures. And I know this. Uh, please forgive the Welsh. Mein ddyn i gyd ymdeimlo a thought when Whatever you're going through tonight, brother, sister, he's a man to get alongside you. He knows what you're going through. He knows because he's been there. But if he was just that, he wouldn't be any good, would he? You need somebody who has the authority. Mein ddyw i gario'r orsedd ar ddiafol cnawdabyd. He's also God overall victorious what a combination if he was only divine we would be shriveled up by his holiness straight away if he was only a man even the best of men he wouldn't be able to do anything for us but because he's the god man two natures in one person he will be everything you stand in need of i'm quite convinced whatever life may throw at us and i know we're being told that in the 21st century Young people who become Christians are facing a situation that we've never faced before. Hang on. That's partly true. But in the New Testament, they were facing the lions in the arena. We're not facing that. And whatever situation we are facing, we've got a Christ, a Jesus, who is more than match. Otherwise, we're saying he's not enough. Are you saying that Jesus is not enough? For our young people? Are you saying that Jesus is not enough for our old people? Are you saying that Jesus is not enough for your situation? 
So he is the son. He is Jesus. And then there's something else here. This is theology again, but Paul doesn't use the terminology. He says that he delivered us from the wrath to come. I'm just going through here things we are all familiar with as believers. The incarnation, uh, the work of Jesus Christ. He came, as we all know, to die on that cross for our sins. The theological term is that his death was a an atonement, a sacrifice for our sins. It was a substitutionary atonement, which means that he was dying in our place. He was the sin bearer. Why did he need to do that? Well, God is holy. God cannot just wink at sin. God has to punish sin. And God loves us so much that he sent his only begotten son into the world in order to do just that. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ became the one who took the punishment. He took all the righteous anger of God. It was all concentrated on him. And in doing that, he deflected it from us. He's the propitiation for our sins. The anger of God is turned away from us. Praise be. There is no more condemnation tonight if you're in Christ. Because he has taken it all. How did Wesley put it? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. We beat ourselves up too much, don't we? We listen to the devil too much. He's died. He's died. Who is he that condemns? Christ hath died. And then it doesn't stop with the cross. Maybe our tendency, let me quote Stuart Townend here because I've got him down in my notes and we sang him this morning. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. People who tell you that Stuart Townend's hymns haven't got as much theology as the older hymns, they're talking rubbish. Sorry. <laughs> They're talking nonsense. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. You can't get better theology than that. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. And glory be to his name. And then it doesn't stop with the cross. We tend to leave Jesus on the cross, don't we, so often? But he's not on the cross. You won't find Jesus Christ on the cross. Because he died and he was taken off the cross and he was put in a grave. But you won't find a grave for Jesus Christ in this world. I know some people in India say that he was buried there, but he's not. He's not here. He's risen. Ascended. And the resurrection was God amening. The work of his son. Just as you sometimes hear an amen coming from a corner of the building. The person saying the amen is agreeing with what the preacher is saying. So Jesus Christ. Can Jesus taking all of our sins upon himself. Can he take all the punishment? Is God the just satisfied? Amen. Says the father. He's paid the debts. 
Sinners can now go to heaven. It's, it's like these car parks. It's, this is not a perfect illustration, but it will make do. You know, these car parks, uh, you have to pay. You have to pay. And how expensive they're getting. You, you shop for about half an hour. And then you go into the car park and you put your ticket in the machine and you find it costs several pounds for half an hour. But you have to pay, you have to pay, otherwise you won't go out. But once the ticket has been paid, you take the ticket out of the machine, you go into the car, and as you drive to the barrier, well, these days you don't even have to put the tickets into uh, the machine by the barrier because they've photographed your car. But in the olden days, you had to put the ticket that had been paid into the slots by the barrier, and lo and behold, the barrier opens, it raises, and you're allowed to go out. Why? Because the price has been paid. The barrier goes up because you're free to go. When our first parents were driven east of Eden. God put a barrier, much, much more of a barrier than in multi-story car parks. God put two flaming swords to stop us from going back to paradise because of our sin. The death of Jesus Christ has removed the barrier. We can go to heaven if we're in him. Because he's paid the price. Isn't that something to look forward to? This wonderful person who's done all of this for us. Christianity is not about what we do. It's about what God has done. And then you see, he's alive now. He's there in heaven. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Listen to his heartbeats. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Do you know what that word delivers says? In the New King James, it's in the present tense. In the original Greek, it's in the present continuous. So, Jesus has delivered us from the wrath of God by 2,000 years ago, taking our sins upon the cross. Jesus is delivering us. He delivered you the day you were given faith to lay hold of him. But it didn't stop there. He's still delivering you. Of his deliverances I will boast till all that are distressed from my example comfort take and charm their griefs to rest. And I know the God who has delivered us, who is delivering us, will deliver us from every evil. Isn't that encouraging? We don't know what the future may hold. We don't know what the future may hold for us as a church. But I know this, that we have a deliverer. And how many times, without us knowing it, he may have delivered us from evils unseen as well as seen. I'm sure, I'm sure on the last day we will look back and we will see, my, that was a deliverance. I may have thought at the time that it was a horrible experience but I'm sure we'll give thanks one day for deliverances that didn't seem like that at the time 
when I was in Bible college, I came across this for the first time. A brother from uh, the Philippines, I gave him a lift somewhere, and I'd never come across this before. He said, Brother Wynn, let's pray before you drive. I thought, is he saying something about my driving? But, but that was his mentality. Even if we don't say a prayer out loud before going out, we're trusting the Lord, aren't we? We're trusting him. Have you thanked the Lord for delivering you? Not just 2,000 years ago, but have you thanked him? And he's alive at this moment. Uh, That came through in one of our prayer meetings uh, a week or so ago. Somebody prayed, he's alive. Why are we so downhearted so often? We have a living saviour. And do you know what? When he ascended into heaven, he didn't stop working. I know he sat down at the right hand of the Father, having completed our salvation, but he didn't stop working. Do you know what he's been doing ever since his ascension? There's a man in heaven at this moment. Now, again, I can't get my mind around that. Uh, Just as when um, Carwin and Galena and Arthur were in Moldova, they weren't here. They were physically in another place. So Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, was no longer here in this world, but he was and is in another place. So there's a man there. And just as you um, can phone somebody, uh, especially these days with WhatsApp, you can even have a Zoom meeting with them, even if they're halfway across the world. So it's possible to have communion with this real person. And oh my, he's working still, he's working. Do you know what he did? He sent the Holy Spirit into your heart when you were saved. And he's still working. Do you know what he's doing now? He's praying. He's praying for you. He's praying for us as a church. He's praying for you as an individual. He'll never forget praying for you. We promise, don't we? I'll remember you in prayer, but we don't. We often break our promises. But Jesus Christ is never breaking promises. He's got your name, not just written in a book or something, but engraved on his heart. And do you know what? He's praying for his church COVID has shown how poor the church is across the land. We thought we were something, but this virus has shown us up. And you know what? We're like the boats, aren't we? When the disciples were in that boat on the Sea of Galilee and the storm was blowing and it was the middle of the night and they thought that they were going to drown. Isn't that a picture of the church so often? There are churches in Wales who are just dwindling and there are evangelical churches who are dwindling. And yet the encouragement is this, Jesus is up on the mountain. He's not not up on some mountain in this world. He's up on the Mount of Zion and you know what he's doing. He's praying for his church as we are tossed to and fro by the waves. He's there interceding for us. Satan may have desired to sift us like wheat, but I am praying for you. I am praying for you personally. And sometimes, and this is wonderful, and I certainly can't explain it, when it's at its darkest, 
in the night watch. He comes down off the mountain and he walks on the waves. And it doesn't matter how high they are, how great the difficulties may be. And he greets us. He does it by his spirits. Have you ever had a visitation like that? Like Hubert Clement had when he was in hospital? He had a visitor who soothed his sorrows. Now, if God wills that we have an assistance, amen. But it's God I want. Jesus Christ. I want him. Don't you? I covet his known and felt presence. I'd rather not have anything else. If we have Jesus Christ. Hasn't it been a long time since we've known his nearness in that way that everybody, everybody realizes the Lord is in this place. That's awesome, my friend. That's awesome. And what else is he doing? What else is he doing? He's not just praying for you and for me, but he is preparing a place for us. I've moved into a flat recently, and it's quite an experience leaving the palatial manse, which is, you know, lovely, and moving into uh, flats. Downsizing. Doesn't matter. Because I'll soon be moving into a mansion. I've never lived in a mansion before. Well, I, I, yes, I have, uh, because I grew up on the grounds of a mansion, which was a special school. But imagine living in a mansion. And that's what Jesus Christ is doing at this moment. I go to prepare a place for you. That's where I am. He may be also. And in my Father's, in my Father's house, are many mansions. Wow. Don't you look forward to that? People use the term today, forever home, don't they? But it's not. You're never going to have a forever home in this world. Heaven is your forever home. And it doesn't matter how difficult things may be now. We've got to leave all this behind one day. And we will be in our forever home. So it's the who. It's the who. Very quickly, can I just go through how then are we to wait? How are we to wait? We have the who to wait for his son from heaven. He's going to come back, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He's coming back to take us home. He's coming back to vindicate his persecuted people. He's coming back in order to put things right. Now, how are we to do it? 
well, the word, as I said at the start, means to patiently wait. It doesn't mean that we say, well, if Jesus is going to come back anytime soon, there's no point in me doing anything. That was the temptation in Thessalonica. People were no longer working. They were lazy because they were saying, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But Paul says, oh, no, the reverse should be true. If this momentous event is on the horizon, if this amazing person who is doing everything for you, if he's coming back anytime soon, don't you want to be ready for him? It's like having an important visitor stay with you, isn't it? You prepare the house, you make sure that it's clean, you arrange the guest room, you make sure that the bed is done up, you make sure uh, that the person will have everything that he stands in need of. Are we prepared for his coming? Do we keep an eye on the horizon, thinking he may come back any time soon? I read of one Welsh Christian. This was maybe the end of the 19th century. The gramophone was just being invented, so he hadn't heard the sound of the gramophone before, hadn't heard the sound of music. And he heard, he didn't know what this was, but he heard this sound, and he'd never heard anything like it before. And he thought it was the last trumpet. He was wrong, but he was so in anticipation of the second coming that even hearing the gramophone for the first time, he thought, he's come, he's come. Uh, let me read Warren Wearsby. Warren Wearsby. A church that truly lives in the expectation of Jesus' return will be a vibrant and a victorious group of people it's a great motivation for soul winning and Christian stability. It is a wonderful comfort in sorrow and a great encouragement for godly living. It is tragic when churches forget this wonderful doctrine. It's even more tragic when churches believe it and preach it but don't practice it. Now we rightly emphasize Jesus coming by his spirits these visitations between the first and the second coming. And I wouldn't want to water that down. But as somebody asked Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones when he was dying, when you get to heaven, they asked him, will you be disappointed when you get there that you never saw revival? And the doctor said, you must be stupid. When I get to glory, I won't need revival. I will see him face to face. Now, we can beat ourselves up, can't we? We can think of God's wonderful works of old, and I'm all for that. But we can then, in a wrong way, not live in the now, because we're hankering back for a past experience, and we're forgetting that even if it's still a day of small things, Jesus is still on the throne. Jesus hasn't changed. He hasn't moved and there's something better than revival on the horizon. Even if there isn't to be another revival in Wales, there's something better. He's coming back. He's coming back. I think we grieve the spirits when we live our lives sometimes moaning because things are so bad today. Yes, they may be bad, but he's more than match. And when things are really, really bad, it's often then that he comes to us. He comes to us. And then we've got to remember, it's the not yet. It's the not yet. 
It's only when he returns that our salvation will be complete. We're in the not yet. Incidentally, if there was a revival, we'd have even more problems. (laughs) But the not yet, not yet. What do I mean by the not yet? Well, it's only when he comes back and when we're taken home that we will be in a perfect place. This world is never meant to be a perfect place. We're never meant to create heaven on earth. Now, don't misunderstand me here. We mustn't say because this world is one day going to go up in flames, we've just got to leave it to its fate. Oh, no. That's saying those that are of heavenly mindedness are of no earthly use. That's not right. If you look at the history of the church, if you look at the Apostle Paul, those of the most heavenly mindedness are of the most earthly use. Paul didn't know what to do. He was in uh, tension. He said, I don't know whether to be present with the Lord or to be here with you. But a man who was living every day in anticipation of the second coming of Christ, how much he did in this world. And if you read of what followed the revivals in the 18th century in this country, the philanthropic work, uh, the good deeds done uh, by uh, the likes of William Wilberforce and others, they were heavenly-minded people, and they had a lot of earthly use. But this world's never going to be an utopia. We're never going to create a perfect world. Heaven is our home, that new heaven and new earth. There's always going to be wars. There's always going to be disease. There's always going to be uh, all sorts of disasters. Because it's a fallen world. Not yet. It's only when we get to glory. And when we think of our bodies... We haven't got perfect bodies. Our bodies are getting frailer. You know, some of you have got arthritic pains, and I, I can't fully enter into how frustrating, how wearying that must be. And God says, not yet, not yet. One day you'll have new bodies, new bodies. Those of you who can't get up now without being in great pain, one day, my friend, one day, you will be leaping on the mountains of heaven. Not yet. And all the things that we have to suffer in this life, as Chris Reese preached in Howell's Induction, it's tears, isn't it? Tears, tears. Tears in the workplace, tears in the family, tears in the church. It's a veil of tears. But one day, We'll be in a place where he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And let me tell you, when we get to heaven, one nanosecond in heaven, one nanosecond in heaven will make us forget the years of heartache that we have suffered in this life. Don't you look forward to him coming back? Don't you? How did we start this service as I'm beginning to draw to a close? Now redemption Not just the redemption of the soul, but of the body. I will have a perfect soul. I will have a perfect body. I will dwell in a perfect place. Now redemption long expected. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
It's like looking forward to the summer holidays. I want to finish by reading the last paragraph from the last Chronicle of Narnia, the last battle. The Pevensey children have arrived in Aslan's country, which is a picture of heaven. And every other time they've been there, they've been sad because they've had to go back into this world and all of its heartache. And Lucy, one of the children, uh, looks sad. And Aslan says, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. And Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent back, Aslan. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leapt and a wild hope rose within them. He says, you are no longer in this world, the Shadowlands. You are now in the real thing. And then he says, the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write of them. And for us, this is the end of these stories, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, all our life in this world, is just the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Leighton Hargest, who wrote the history of our church, we may think, well, his life is over. Oh no, his life is just beginning. And he's not gonna be able to write a history book of his forever home, is he? And one day, you will be there. One day, Jesus Christ will come, the man Jesus Christ will come back from that heaven and he will come down here and he will come and put all things right and he will take us to be with himself. I better finish there because we're still in the world of time. So <laughs> let's end by singing forever with the Lord. Amen. Do you, do you say amen to that? Amen. So let it be. And we're a day's march nearer home. However difficult things may be for you at this moment, we are on the victory side with Christ and we're going home. So let's sing. And it's number 809 for those of you listening
that resurrection word, that shout of victory. We praise thee, O Lord, that we are more than conquerors through him that has loved us. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forever. Amen.